Well, we're going to go ahead and open up our Bibles at this time to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I've included a copy of the text this morning there in your uh, song lyrics, your worship guide. So you'll find uh, the scripture if you want to just read along right there on the back page of your worship guide, or you're welcome to open up your Bible. I just know that once the mister started, a, a few of you said it got a little too wet and soggy and you couldn't use your Bible. So uh, we definitely want to make sure that you have a copy of the scriptures as we study through this morning. Well, many things have changed in the past few months, haven't they? Uh, even simple tasks like going to the doctor's office or going to the grocery store to pick up a jug of milk. Simple tasks have certainly taken on new complexities. And yet this morning, I want to encourage you and remind you that although many things have changed, far, far, far more things have stayed the same. You see, the unshakable truths of the gospel have not changed. The character and the power of God has not changed. The human predicament of our sinfulness and our separation from God, that has not changed. I think we've seen new manifestations of sin, but the fundamental nature of mankind has not changed. And so all of the things that we are to build our lives, our hope, our families upon, none of those things have changed. I've told people, I am so thankful to be a Christian in the midst of this pandemic. To be quite honest, I don't know what I would do without Christ right now because the Bible gives the answers. It explains everything that is going on. It explains how we can live in a beautiful world like the scenery that we have in front of us and yet in at the same time a fallen world where there is so much injustice and corruption and brokenness and even disease and death. Our worldview explains that. The gospel explains it. And so this morning we're going to one of the most important texts in all of the Bible as we just reassure ourselves of the fundamental truths of the gospel, and as we prepare to go into a week where we hope and pray God is going to give us new opportunities to share Christ. Imagine, those of you who are VBS workers, that sometime this week, while you're wrapping up your craft, while you're dispensing the snacks, while you're finishing your Bible story, the little boy or girl comes up to you and says, teacher, how do I go to heaven? Are you ready to answer that question? Youth leaders, it could be those of you who are 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, 14 years old. I don't want to omit my son either. Those of you who are in that junior helper stage, you guys are important to this program. In fact, you may be able to relate with these kids better than some of us can. It could be that one of those children comes up to you and says, what was the teacher talking about this morning about believing in Jesus? So all of us, as it says in 1 Peter, need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And we're going to spend a few minutes going over a refresher course of the gospel. I hope it's not new information to many of you. But if it is, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening and watching because it's important for you to know this message. This message has the potential to transform your life today and forever. We're going to a foundational text. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's a summary of the gospel. Let me go ahead and just read verses 1 through 11. Paul is about to launch into an extended passage on the resurrection, but he begins that by talking about the gospel. And the resurrection, the rising of the dead of Jesus Christ, is one component of the gospel. So let's look at what Paul has to say. He says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me, Paul says. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The story is told of Vince Lombardi back in 1961, opening day of football training, that he got all of his players together, and he pulled out that funny-shaped pigskin ball, and he said, men, this is a football. Now, these were men that had spent their whole lives dreaming of winning a championship, and yet, as they came to the first day of that season's football practice, the coach started with the fundamentals. This is a football. Those players had come off of a crushing defeat in the championship the previous year. They were probably thinking one of two things. Either one, we may never get that close to a championship again. That was our chance. Or they might have thinking we were so close, if we can just change one little play, if we can just make one minor adjustment, then we can win. But he said, no, no, no. We need to go back to the fundamentals of the game and take nothing for granted. Well, in a sense, this is the Apostle Paul's Vince Lombardi moment. This is him speaking to the Corinthian church and God speaking to the Yucca Valley church. This is the gospel. You may know it. Great. Praise the Lord but you're never going to get past it. You see, everything in football is based upon that little athletic tool, that ball. And everything that happens in the Christian life really goes back to this message right here, the fundamentals of the gospel. We as Christians have a message. We are to be witnesses. And this morning, I want to share with you a three-point outline about this message that God has given to us. Three features of this message that we see. First of all, this message is good. Secondly, this message is simple. And thirdly, this message is one of a kind. It's good, it's simple, and it's one of a kind. Let's begin by thinking for a moment about how this message is a good, good message. It's the best message in all the world. You'll notice with me in verse 1 that Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you. Now, you've heard that name, that word, many, many times before, gospel. Perhaps you know, but maybe you don't, that the word gospel literally means good news. Gospel means good news. It's actually a compound word in Greek. Angelia means message. You is a prefix when added to a word adds the idea of good. 
So euangelia means a good message. We get in English words like evangelical, evangelist. These come from the Greek word euangelia that is used in verse 1, the gospel. So when we evangelize, we are gospelizing. We are speaking the good news of the gospel. Paul uses this word as a noun in verse 1. And then interestingly, he adopts it as a verb in verse 2 where he says, it is by this message that you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. And that word preached is literally I evangelized you. I gospelized you. I good newsed you. So the gospel is both a message and an action. And it's good by its very nature. It is speaking of a good message. Have you ever received good news? I mean, really, really good news. So good that you jumped up from your seat. So good that you immediately picked up the phone and called your friend. You grabbed the family together to tell them. You told everybody at church, have you ever had really, really, really good news? Maybe after trying for so long, the pregnancy test comes back positive finally. We have friends in our church that have been trying to sell their home and uh, a new job has been accepted and there's a lot of pressure on them financially and we just got word yesterday that their home has now received an offer and there's somebody else who's interested and somebody else who's checking it out today and what for a long time seemed to drag on and on and on, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? All of a sudden, good news. And often good news involves this wave of relief. I think particularly about military families and how a dad, a husband, goes far off to another country into harm's way. He faces combat there, and the family waits in suspense expectantly. Is is my husband okay? Is my dad okay? Is he okay? Is he okay? Every time the phone rings, every time the text message comes in, every time there's a knock on the door, you wonder, and you maybe think the worst. And then finally, you get the good news. He's home and safe from deployment. And there's this overwhelming rush of relief and joy. It's going to be okay. Often news is especially good news when it involves a, a period of uncertainty and tension and trial that led up to that good news. You wait, you pray, you suffer a while, you beg God for help, and then suddenly he answers. One of my favorite good news stories in the Bible takes place in 2 Kings chapter 7. Uh, It's actually not too long after what we've been studying in the historical events of the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings in the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. Elijah, of course, was replaced by another prophet named Elisha. And during the days of Elisha, there was another famine that took place in the land. And once again, Israel was turning against God. There was apostasy in the land. The Syrians had marched in and were beginning to invade the land. People were hungry, they were thirsty, they were dying. And there's a story told about four men who were lepers. That means they weren't allowed to associate with the rest of the general public. And they're out by themselves and they see the Syrian army encampment. And they think to themselves, we are about to die from thirst and starvation. Let's go to the Syrian encampment and see if by chance we can scrounge up some kind of supplies. And as they come over the crest line and they look down at the encampment, they see something they never expected. The camp is empty. 
Oh, yes, the tents are all there. Maybe campfires are still smoldering, but the soldiers are all gone. It's completely abandoned. And so these lepers go down into the encampment, and you know what they find? They find cool water, fresh food, gold, silver, clothing. They find everything that they could possibly want. And you know what their first instinct is? They start hoarding it. They start eating it, drinking it. They take together the supplies and start hiding it and burying it. And then they say this to themselves. They said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. You see, they had good news that the people needed to hear. There is fresh food and water and clothing and supplies that's going to last us a long time. And they knew that good news was not to be kept to themselves. It needed to be what? To be shared with others. So our message is by its very nature, a good message. It's a good message. And hopefully by now you're asking, well, what is the good news? What is the good message? Well, friends, this message is even better than saying, I know where there is gold and silver hidden and free for the taking. This message is better than saying, I have some water for you when you're thirsty. I have some food for you when you're hungry. But in a sense, it is saying those things, isn't it? Because the gospel is described by Jesus as the pearl of great price in which a man went and sold all that he had to obtain it. Jesus describes himself as the flowing fountain of living waters to quench the thirst of those who are spiritually parched. The gospel and Jesus Christ is described as the bread of life that whoever would feed upon him will have eternal life. So there is a sense of where we have food and water and riches. But this is a spiritual message. And it's a good message because it lasts for this life, but also for the life to come. You see, any earthly comforts that you have are only temporary. We like earthly comfort. It's appropriate to have some shade and to have a cool drink or to have a coffee this morning, but it's more important to think about heavenly comfort. It's more important to think about eternal safety. And that's particularly what this gospel message addresses. It talks about our eternal condition. Now let's look at the content of this good message. And when we go into this, it's our second point. Our message is simple. Our message is simple. You see it with me in verse three. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. That's the basic content of the gospel. When that boy or girl comes up to you and says, how can I go to heaven? You tell them this message. Jesus loves you. And he died for you and he rose again. He saved you from your sins. And if you would turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, you can have the free gift of eternal life. That's the simple message of the gospel. Some have said that the scriptures are so simple and yet profound. They are like a great river that is so shallow that a toddler can wade all the way across, but they are so deep that an elephant can swim and never reach the bottom. 
That's what the scriptures are like. They can amuse and interest and gather the imagination of a child that a child can latch on to these sweet and simple milk-like truths and yet they are so deep like a cavern that never ends constant new veins of gold being discovered that scholars will spill lots of ink and write lots of books and have many discussions and barely begin to scrape the surface of the depths of this book the gospel is simple we can explore it We can search out its truths and its facets and its ramifications, but the message at its very core is extremely simple. Christ died for our sins and rose again. Notice that we are given both the what and the why. We're given both the what and the why. What do I mean by that? Well, we have, first of all, the what, the event. Christ died. That was a historical event. I've had the privilege of going to Israel and into Jerusalem to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the likely location of Golgotha, where Jesus literally died on a cross. Of course, the Gospels tell us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, multiple eyewitnesses, easily verified. They record that Jesus of Nazareth was unjustly arrested and tried. Then he was executed between two criminals. Even those who were on the scene knew he had done nothing wrong. Yet he allowed himself to have a crown of thorns pressed down into his skull, nails driven into his hands and his feet. And at the end of six excruciating hours upon that cross, heaving for every breath, dying of dehydration and blood loss, he gave up his spirit to the Lord. The historical details of the gospel are very simple. We can read about them and learn about them and continue to be humbled by them. But we have not only the what of Christ's death, we also have the why. Why did he do all that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins. That's why he died. He died for our sins. This is the great doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And perhaps by saying that, we've moved out of the childlike simplicity of the gospel, but maybe we haven't. We need to let children understand that somebody else took your place. You see, Jesus atoned for your sin. He paid your debt. You owed something to God, and Jesus paid that for you. God had to punish you because he is holy and you are sinful and Jesus took that punishment instead of you. Substitutionary atonement that Christ substituted on our behalf because we were sinners and needed a savior. Paul Washer, the evangelist, tells the story of a woman who came up to him toward the end of her life. She probably pulled him close and said, Pastor Paul, I have a special request for you at my funeral. There's something I want you to do. She said, I want you to stand up in front of all of my family and all my friends and say, as my casket is there in front of them, this woman was not a good woman. That's what I want you to do, Pastor Paul. Now, I guarantee that when he did that, he had everybody's attention. This woman who lies before you was not a good woman because typically we hear everybody say just the opposite. Oh, he was such a good guy. He was such a good woman. But the gospel actually says we're pretty crummy. We're sinners. 
We've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, certainly she may have been a very, very sweet and dear woman. And I'm sure he went on to elaborate upon, you know, the, the, the sweet traits and the kindness and the love of this woman. I can't imagine any woman saying that without having a little bit of a sense of humor and a sparkle in her eye. But at the same time, there's truth in that, that every one of us at our funerals should be able to have testified, this was not a good man, this was not a good woman. I love what John Newton said toward the end of his life. You remember John Newton? He was the author of Amazing Grace. He said, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. And that's the message of the gospel. We are great sinners, but Christ died for our sins. And so he is a great savior. He is a capable and a mighty savior who is able to overcome our sin and reconcile us back to God, although we are so undeserving. Romans chapter three says, there is none righteous, no, not one. You see that message alone, or Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin, the the just payment for sin is death. That message by itself is not good news. That's terrible news. But that's important to create that tension and suspense so we are ready for the medicine of the good news. First, people need to understand there's a problem, there's a predicament, so they are ready for the good news of the gospel. It's appropriate to start out in our evangelism. Uh, Do you have a Bible? You ever get a chance to read it? Or uh, do you go to church? You have a church family anywhere? Or... Do you know what it means to be born again? Have you ever heard that expression? Or could I tell you what God has done in my life? And I'll admit that's one of the hardest things is just to break the ice and get into that spiritual conversation. We, we look for and we pray for opportunities. But remember that we have a good message. Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I wonder sometimes if I'm ashamed if we're ashamed of this message or somehow we forget that the power is in the transformative message of the gospel. It is good news and it's a simple message. It goes on to say not only the what and the why of Christ dying and being for our sins, but it says that he was buried. Now understand this, Christ's burial was verification of the fact that he had died. The fact that Jesus was buried and how many days was he in the tomb? Three days, right? So Jesus wasn't asleep. Jesus didn't fall into a coma. He didn't feign death. He was placed into a tomb after his corpse was peeled off of the cross and the stone was rolled in front of the tomb and a royal seal was put on top of it and guards were stationed at it. You see, the burial of Christ authenticates his death. It verifies, it historically proves that he had really died. So his burial gives us that sense of confidence and confirmation that Christ did truly die. This was not some kind of hoax or cover-up or misunderstanding. Clearly, he had died, just as he said that he would, and then he was buried. But what happened? Of course, on the third day, he didn't stay buried. He rose again. Christ rose again on the third day in accordance with scriptures. He died Friday afternoon. He stayed in the tomb all Friday evening, all day Saturday, the early hours of Sunday morning, and then he burst forth from the grave. The angel rolls back the stone. Christ or the angel, one of them, folds up the linens that had wrapped Christ 
and set them neatly and tidily there upon the slab of stone to make crystal clear the body had not been taken. This is not the work of grave robbers, but rather the corpse was no longer dead. Jesus was alive. He had risen from the grave. And those angels said to the disciples when they came early on Sunday morning, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Why would you come to a tomb to look for a living person? Because he's not here. He's alive just as he said that he would be. You see, Jesus kept his promise. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then just as Christ's burial affirms and verifies his death, so Christ's appearances affirm and verify his resurrection. So we have a parallel here. He died, he was buried. He was raised, he appeared. And notice the people that he appeared to. The apostle Paul says that he appeared to Cephas. Now actually Cephas, or another name for Simon Peter, was not the first person that Jesus appeared to, but before that, there were some women there in the garden that morning. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and Clopas. There there was a number of ladies that were there in the garden that saw Jesus face to face. Then he appeared to Cephas. We have the story in Luke chapter 24 that he appeared to two on the road to Emmaus. Then we are told that he appeared to the 12, all the apostles together as a unit. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And Paul adds this note, most of whom are still alive. That is, even though probably none of the Corinthians had seen Jesus face to face, if they really wanted to do an investigative report, they could chase down some of those eyewitnesses and say, did you really see Jesus? And they'd say, oh yes, I did. I saw him there in Galilee. I heard his voice. I ate with him. I saw the scars of the wounds of where he died for me. He's alive. He's alive. He is king. You see, they could go and ask these people, firsthand eyewitnesses, most whom were still alive, though some had fallen asleep, a tender way to refer to the fact that some had already died and gone into their heavenly reward. Verse 7 says he appeared to James. This is referring to the half-brother of Jesus. James had before been a skeptic, a scoffer, but after Christ rose from the dead, Jesus' half-brother James converted to Christianity. And another friend named Jude also converted to Christianity. They became followers, recognizing that Jesus was truly the Messiah. Then he appeared to all the apostles, verse 7. Last of all, he says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. See, Paul himself writing this letter is also an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can put your trust, you can bet the farm on this. Jesus is alive. And I'm not making a mistake here. I mean, this is a, a big risk. What are you going to put your eternity on? What are you going to hope in? What are you going to believe in is going to happen after you die? Everybody believes in something. Even to say nothing is going to happen is still believing in something. What's going to happen when you die? Where are you going to go? Does life continue? How does it change? Well, the Bible tells us. And it says that Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. So he was the first crop of what will happen to us who trust in Jesus Christ. This is a message that we can trust in and believe in and hang our entire weight and risk our eternity on because we know it is true. And there's many reliable eyewitnesses and of course the God-inspired scriptures that testify, testify to that fact. 
You may have noticed that two times it says that this happened in accordance with the scriptures in verse three and again in verse four. You see, Christ died in accordance with the scriptures and he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Both times we are told that this happened because the Bible said it would happen. Paul likely had in mind passages like Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Doesn't that sound like Christ died for our sins? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Amen. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Christ died for our sins according to what the scripture said he would do in Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant. But Christ also rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. Christ's resurrection was also prophesied in the Bible. You say, well, where does the Bible say that Jesus was gonna rise from the dead? Well, the apostles cite Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Embedded in that scripture was a prophecy that the Messiah was going to rise again from the dead and that God's Holy One, the ultimate Holy One, Jesus Christ, would not undergo corruption or decay, but he would rise again. Remember what Jesus did on that road to Emmaus with those two disciples that he appeared to that afternoon of his resurrection. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus said to those disciples, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. From Genesis to Malachi, there are deliberate, direct prophecies along with types and shadows and and foreshadowing of the things that are going to take place. And Jesus spent time talking with those disciples and connecting the dots of how there was actually a lot that the scriptures had said would happen and that it was clear that the Messiah must suffer and then rise again. Our message is simple. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again and he appeared. But friends, let me remind you lastly that this message is not only good and it's not only simple, but it is one of a kind. This message, this news, is unlike any other message or news you will find anywhere. I think of the Cronkites who have a wonderful used bookstore here. You got a couple hours to kill, go into the Sagebrush Press bookstore and just spend some time browsing. You'll find all kinds of little hidden gems there in that bookstore. And they've got a whole section dedicated to religion and spirituality. Now they have a broad clientele and so they have a lot of different kinds of books, books that have been donated, books that have been traded, books that people wanna buy. But you can go to any bookstore and see dozens, hundreds, thousands of books that are available that will tell you of different people's opinions of which religions are right. What's the correct worldview? I looked up on Amazon clicked on the religion and spirituality category last night. It says over 100,000 volumes are available in this category. And I'm sure there's well over that number. 
Statistics show that there are some 4,200 different religions in the world. Pew Research did a study a few years ago identifying the major world religions. Christianity is currently listed as the number one religion in the world with 2.3 billion people. I'm encouraged by that, but then you've got to keep in mind many of those people are not evangelical Christian. This involves Roman Catholic. This involves Orthodox. It involves all the cults. Anybody who attaches some kind of identity to the religion of Christianity is going to be lumped together with that. Um, The extreme name it and claim it, um, word of faith movement would be included in that as well. Uh, Unfortunately, I think those who are true, genuine believers and not chaff, but rather wheat is probably a much, much smaller number than that. Nevertheless, Christianity is currently listed as the number one religion at 2.3 billion. Well, that leaves another five to six billion, the vast majority of the planet, that don't even identify in any way with Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Muslims come in at number two with 1.8 billion. They happen to be the largest growing religion or the fastest growing religion in the world, partly because they're uh, having more children. And so through reproduction and a higher birth rate, they're actually quickly overpopulating Europe, which was once the birthplace of the Reformation is now being filled with mosques and Muslim teaching. The number three category of religion in the world is those who say they are unaffiliated. They don't believe in any one religion. Maybe all paths lead to heaven, or maybe they just don't believe in a God at all, but they're unaffiliated with any kind of religion. 1.2 billion people in the world would not identify with a particular faith or holy book. Hindus, 1.1 billion. Buddhists, 500 million. And I look at these different religions and spend a few minutes studying their basic beliefs, and I'm left with one conclusion. None of them hold a candle to the message of the gospel. All of them have some kind of good works, apart from Christianity, some kind of good works and merit that's going to get you into an afterlife, that's going to make life better if you work hard enough, if you sacrifice enough. But just as Jerry read for us earlier this morning there in the Gospel of Luke, You have two men that supposedly come to God in prayer, and one of them says, thank God I am not like all those people over there and all the bad things they do. But look at what I do, Lord. Now let me into heaven. And the other person says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It is that second person, the publican, the tax collector, the despised who humbled himself that found mercy before holy God. It's a good message, and it's one of a kind. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in verse 3, when we see in 1 Corinthians 15, we need to notice the fact that it is not Allah or Muhammad or Buddha or Baal or any other so-called deity who died for our sins. It is who? It is Christ Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is a -a one-of-a-kind exclusive message. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The apostles in the early church, Acts chapter 4, they preached, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you can be saved. There's no other name. 
but Jesus Christ. Where Paul says in Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If every road led to heaven and God was so loving, so to speak, that it didn't matter which religion and which God that you believed in, why would he give his one and only son to suffer an excruciating death and pour out his wrath upon him in order for you to be saved? Why would he do that if every other religion was just as good? People in the first century were religious. Many of them were pagan, but they had different forms of spirituality and religion. Why would God send his one and only begotten son into this world to die for you? And the answer is because that's the only way that we could be reconciled. There was no other option. And so in the fullness of, son, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, thus avoiding the contamination of sinful corruption. All of us had inherited that original sin from Adam, but Jesus was able to bypass that by being born biologically of a woman, but conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. He is fully God, but he is also fully man. He lived a perfect life that we could not live. He died the substitutionary death that we deserve to die, and he rose again on the third day. And friends, there is no other God, there is no other religion that comes close to the good news of the gospel. And so Paul says in verse one, I would remind you, brothers, of this gospel. And he says in verse three, I delivered this to you as of first importance. Oh, this message is so good. It's so simple. It's so unique that I made sure this was the most important thing I got across to you. And as we go into vacation Bible school, I want these kids to remember the laughter and the love and the games. And I want them to put up the crafts on their wall for years to come. I want them to enjoy the taste of the snacks and the special treats, but I want them to know of first importance, Jesus loves them. This we know because the Bible tells us so. And they can receive the free gift of eternal life by trusting in him. You know the, the song, Victory in Jesus. Let me just read the first verse of that for us. It says, I heard an old, old story, how a savior came from glory how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. And then I repented of my sins and won the victory. You see, this message is a good message. It's a simple message, but it is a one of a kind message. And our church exists to get this message out and to put it in practice every day in our lives. Romans 10, 15 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We're, thank you, we're, we're thankful and we want to thank you for joining us this morning. I want to thank those of you that have been watching online. It's so good to be together, isn't it, as God's people? Sing together, read scripture together, pray together. Oh, we just need this so much in our thirsty souls uh, we certainly invite you to stick around a little bit, visit, fellowship, 
uh, be on the lookout. Uh, we have some, some new faces, some new friends that have recently started joining us. We want to say a special welcome to you. And in light of the pandemic, it's been hard for us to have kind of our normal way. You know, a lot of times we'd have maybe a visitor card to give out um, or we'd have a, a newcomer's lunch. Um, we've not been able to do that as frequently as we would like to recently, but we want to let you know how much we are thankful that you are here we hope that you'll feel welcome, and we want our regulars to look for those that are fairly new and introduce yourself and make them feel welcome to the church. If you'd like to give, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of our church ministry. I think we're going to have a basket set up out there once again toward the exit. Is that correct? Okay, thank you, Matt. So we got a, a giving basket, an offering basket that's available. Uh, if you'd like to drop a gift in there to support our church ministry, we're deeply, deeply grateful and indebted for that. Those of you who are watching online, you can uh, write a checkout and just mail that to the church, or you can also go to our website, crossviewyucca.org, and we have a giving tab up at the top that will allow you to give a donation toward our church ministry as well. It's been a joy to be together this morning. Uh, we hope that you'll stick around in fellowship a little bit afterwards. Uh, for those of you who are helping next week with Vacation Bible School, our program starts at 8.30 a.m. So if you can maybe get here around 8 so we can do final setup, we're going to put up a couple canopies again, get a registration and a welcome table set up, just be ready for games. Uh, junior helpers, if you just come with a willing heart, ready to serve and help, I'll give you instructions in the morning of how you can help us and uh, help keep the kids on task. Um, I think we've got several that already have volunteered to help with setup, but we can always use more. So if you're available tomorrow morning, you want to come about 745, 8 o'clock and help us to set up, we'd be uh, very thankful for that. Uh, I see Fred in the back, and Fred Orvitz said this week that he would be willing to serve as a trustee. So we want to thank you for that, brother. And uh, we talked about that last week. And uh, so next Sunday, we'll give you a week just to give you a heads up notice. We'll have a quick business meeting after the service. And we'd like to recommend Fred as uh, one of our trustees so that we can fill that vacancy that we have there. Am I missing anything? Any other special announcements that I need to give? Jerry? Okay. All right. Excellent. Why don't we close in a word of prayer and we'll finish. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for this message. And uh, certainly it should be a refresher course for us as we go back to the fundamentals. But let us never forget and never cherish the simple message of the gospel. If there be anybody here this morning watching and listening to this who has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray right now you would overwhelm them with the depth of their sin and their separation from a holy God that they would tremble and feel a sense of almost panic. Lord, what do I do? I'm a sinner. I deserve your judgment. I'm not ready to die. But then, Lord, comfort them with the sweet truths of the gospel that you have done what is necessary. You have sent your son to make it possible for us to be reconciled. And that that heavy burden of guilt would be rolled off of our back and the stain of sin would be washed as white as snow. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray that we would be messengers sharing this good news with those who do not know you. In the week ahead, open the hearts of these children to understand and believe this sweet and simple message. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's broadcast of Feed My Sheep, a ministry of Crossview Bible Church in Yucca Valley. For more information, please visit www.crossviewyucca.org. We'd love to have you come and visit us this Sunday. 
We're located on Onaga Trail, just a half mile west of Yucca Valley High School. God bless and have a great week.